I just wanted to start off by encouraging the worship team because I know that it's not an easy job. And I think, you know, we can come to church on a Sunday and expect that it's pretty easy to throw together, but it's not. These guys put in a lot of hard practice. And um, yeah, I think God's really using you guys and Carla, using you in particular to lead us into a place of genuine worship. And so I just really want to encourage you. Keep going. <laughs> cool. Um, so for those of you who don't know me, my name is Elise. I am part of the City AM team. Um, but before that, I came to City PM for like four years. So this is really home for me. Um, so I always love coming back to City PM. Um, I'm going to start off by praying, if that's all right. Father God, Lord, thank you that you are here with us. And thank you that you're always here with us, Lord. Father, I pray that uh, you would speak through me tonight, the Holy Spirit, you would fill me afresh, and that these would be your words and not my own. That, Lord, um, you would be my strength, that you would use me and my weakness and my brokenness to speak to at least one person here tonight, that your words would pierce our hearts and that they would bring conviction and comfort to those who need those things. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Cool. So this is our final week of the Misfits of the Faith sermon series. And over the last few weeks, we've looked at a range of characters in the Bible who, on face value, we wouldn't really expect God to use. People that we might consider unworthy or unqualified by human standards. And to start off tonight, I just want to touch again briefly on the piece of scripture that we've been anchoring this series in, which is 1 Corinthians 1, verse 26 to 31. In his letter to the church in Corinth, Paul writes, Brothers and sisters, Think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. Probably not the most uplifting thing to hear someone say about you. But the point that Paul's trying to make is that God didn't call the Christians in Corinth because they were wise or powerful. He doesn't need them to be those things because he is. But God chose to use the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. He chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things, the things that are not, to nullify, that is, to bring to nothing or make no use or value of, the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. So not only did God not need the Christians in Corinth to be wise or powerful, he actually deliberately chose them because they were the opposite of those things. He chooses things that seem foolish to the world to bring shame to those things that we esteem in society, like wealth, power, and knowledge. Verse 30, it is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, that is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. These three things are products of Christ's work, not ours. We can't take any credit in them because we receive them as gifts from God. Therefore, we have nothing to boast in. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Now, if there's one overarching point I think we should take away from this whole sermon series, it's that all glory belongs to God. We've looked at several characters in the Bible who God chose to use because they showcase his strength, his power, and his majesty. And my hope is that through this series, we can be encouraged that we don't have to work and strive in our own strength because God can and does use us in our weakness and our brokenness. 
So let's start looking at the character that we're focusing on today. Now this is a bit of a participatory exercise, so I need you guys to actually talk back to me and not leave me hanging, please. <laughs> All right. What's the first thing that comes to your mind when you think of Peter, the disciple? Rock. Awesome. Rooster. Sorry? Denial. He was on water. He sank. <laughs> That's a bit depressing. <laughs> Anyone else? Uh-huh. So they say. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so we could add to that list uneducated, a coward, a bad friend. When we look through the New Testament, we see that Peter's life was a bit of a mixed bag. No doubt he had some admirable qualities, but he also had many not-so-great moments. And I personally find Peter a very encouraging character of the Bible, because I think Peter's life shows the depth of God's love and patience and his desire to restore our relationship with him. And I think Peter can speak to us wherever we may be in our journey with God. He has his fair share of ups and downs before he meets Jesus, while he's physically walking with Jesus, and even after Jesus returns to heaven. And even though Peter's conviction throughout scripture isn't super constant, what is constant is God's love for him and desire to restore Peter and get him back on the right track. So today I have a few points that I want to draw from Peter's life. And the first is this. Before we knew Christ, we were weak, foolish and broken. But Jesus has restored us and brought us into relationship with him. When Peter was first called by Jesus, he definitely wasn't qualified to be a disciple of the Most High King by any earthly measure. If you were picking a team to do ministry with, Peter wouldn't be at the top of your list. And yet, Jesus chooses Peter to be his closest companion during his time on earth. So why might we consider Peter unqualified for this position? Well, let's have a bit of a look at his background. So Peter was originally from the village of Bethsaida in Galilee, but he was living in Capernaum when he meets Jesus. His birth name was Simon, but Jesus changes his name to Peter, which translates to stone or rock. He was a fisherman, along with his, along with his brother Andrew, and the brothers James and John, who were also called to be Jesus' disciples. Now, fishermen in those days were pretty rough, shabby, and often aggressive dudes. They had a pretty tough life, often used bad language, were very physical and had hot tempers. Peter was a lower class rural Galilean, and we also know from scripture that he was uneducated or untrained. In Acts 4, Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, makes a speech in front of the Sanhedrin. Acts 4 verse 13. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. So what we can take from this scripture is that Peter never received any formal education in the Mosaic law. He may have been able to read and maybe write, but he had never received any formal education. And he also had no special position in society. He wasn't an official or a priest. He was just an uneducated fisherman. 
He wasn't wise or powerful by worldly standards. In fact, he was seen by others as foolish and weak. But perhaps most importantly, we know that Peter was a sinner. Let's turn to Luke 5 and read together. One day, as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, the people were crowding around him and listening to the word of God. He saw at the water's edge two boats left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, that is Peter, and asked him to put out a little from shore. Then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything. But because you say so, I will let down the nets. When they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. Then Jesus said to Simon, don't be afraid. From now on, you will fish for people. So they pulled their boats up on shore, left everything and followed him. Now, we don't know why exactly Peter calls himself a sinner. Scripture doesn't go into detail about exactly what his sin was. But regardless, Peter is very aware that the life he's been living makes him unworthy of Jesus. He doesn't even see himself as worthy of being in Jesus' sight. Go away from me, Lord, he says. Peter is amazed and overwhelmed by the power of God that has just been displayed, and he's immediately humbled and aware of his brokenness. But notice Jesus' response in this moment. Jesus doesn't say, actually, Peter, you're right. You're not really qualified for this position. See you later. No, he says, don't be afraid. From now on, you will fish for people. In other versions of the story in the Gospels of Matthew and Mark, Jesus says to them, come, follow me. See, Jesus didn't care that Peter was unqualified. In fact, maybe that's the very reason why he chose Peter, because that way God would get all the glory for the works done in Peter's life. Instead of leaving Peter in his weakness and his brokenness, Jesus invites him into a relationship with him, to be his disciple. He restores Peter to where God has always wanted us to be, and that is in communion with him. And maybe there's some of you sitting here tonight that have been around church for a while, and you feel like God might be calling you into a relationship with him and calling you to follow him. But you feel too broken and too weak and too sinful to respond to that call. Maybe you feel too broken and too sinful for God to ever want you or to use you. Can I encourage you? Yes, you are broken. But Jesus wants to walk with you anyway. So much so that he died a painful death on a cross for you. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17 to 19. 
Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone, the new is here. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. Reconciling meaning to restore our relationship with God that was broken by sin. If you respond to Jesus' call in your life and decide to follow him, regardless of how broken you are, he will make you a new creation and your sins will no longer be counted against you. You are not too broken to be restored to him. Now, if you've been around church for a while, the point I've just made probably isn't really news to you. You're like, oh yeah, I was broken and I was saved and Jesus saved me and all that kind of stuff. And we're often okay with the fact that before we were called, we were all broken, weak and foolish. But I think it can be harder for us to come to terms with the fact that even when we decide to follow Jesus, we are still broken, weak and foolish. Our sins are no longer counted against us. And hopefully we will be becoming less and less of those things and more and more like Jesus. But it doesn't happen overnight. Sanctification, this idea of becoming more holy and more like Jesus, is an ongoing process. So my second point is this. We are broken, weak, and foolish. But God is restoring us and continuing to bring us into a relationship with him. When Jesus first called Peter, maybe there were some things about him that changed overnight. And maybe for you guys, that was similar as well. Maybe when you decided to follow Jesus, there were things about your life that changed straight away. But Peter was by no means perfect. As I said earlier, Peter's life is a bit of a mixed bag between some really awesome moments and some not so awesome moments. And Peter's the kind of guy that has you slapping your forehead quite a lot as you read scripture. For example, when Jesus explains that he's going to suffer and die, Peter rebukes him saying, this cannot be. To which Jesus replies, get behind me, Satan. And reprimands Peter for having an earthly perspective rather than a godly perspective. Another example is the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus asks Peter, along with James and John, to pray for him in his hour of need, and they fall asleep twice. He doesn't even bother to wake them up the second time. Peter also becomes physically violent when Jesus is arrested, and he cuts off the air of the high priest. See, Peter was bold, but often wrong. He was rash and hasty, irritable and impulsive. But perhaps Peter's most infamous blunder is when he denies knowing Jesus three times. In Matthew 26, verse 31 to 35, at the Last Supper, Jesus says to his disciples, This very night you will all fall away on account of me, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter replied, even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. Truly, I tell you, Jesus answered, this very night, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. But Peter declared, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the other disciples said the same. 
Now, at this point, Peter's feeling pretty confident in his conviction and loyalty to Jesus. But jump forward to later that same night, just after Jesus' arrest. Jesus is arrested and brought to the house of the high priest, and Peter follows him there. And this account is in Luke 22, starting from verse 54. Then seizing him, they led him away and took him into the house of the high priest. Peter followed at a distance. And when some of them there had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and had sat down together, Peter sat down with them. A servant girl saw him seated there in the firelight. She looked closely at him and said, this man was with him, but he denied it. Woman, I don't know him, he said. A little later, someone else saw him and said, you also are one of them. Man, I am not, Peter replied. About an hour later, another asserted, certainly this fellow was with him, for he is a Galilean. Peter replied, man, I don't know what you're talking about. Just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed. The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. Now this passage is quite the contrast to the one we just read. Rather than laying down his life for Jesus, Peter actually ends up denying that he even knows, knows Jesus at all. In Mark's gospel account, it actually says that Peter began to call down curses and swore to them, I don't know this man you're talking about. And then Jesus turns and looks straight at him. Can you imagine how Peter might be feeling in that moment? What kinds of emotions might be going through his head? Guilt, shame, remorse, condemnation. Now, the reason I give all these examples of Peter's shortcomings is not so that we can all feel better about ourselves, because at least we're not as bad as Peter, but because in reality, we're all Peters. We all have moments. I have many moments where I fall short of the life God has called me to. We may have even had moments or will have moments in the future that are so bad that we think our relationship with Christ is irreparable that we are beyond restoration. But Peter's story serves as a reminder of how patient and gracious our God is. After Jesus' death and resurrection, he reveals himself to his disciples a few different times. And one of those times, Peter and some of the other disciples decide to go fishing, and they don't catch anything all night. Reading from John 21, verse four. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. As soon as, as, soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off, and he jumped into the water. I might be like, like not reading into the cultural context, but I don't really understand why he put clothes on before he jumped into the water. It seems a bit strange to me. The other disciples followed him in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from the shore. 
about 100 yards. And I love how this passage mirrors the one at the very beginning when Jesus first calls Peter, that yet again Jesus uses a miraculous catch of fish to show his power just before he restores Peter. And I also find it pretty amazing that Peter literally throws himself in the water to get to Jesus as quickly as he possibly could. If I just denied Jesus three times, I would probably be swimming in the other direction. If we skip forward a few verses to verse 15. When they, had, when they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Jesus already knew that Peter loved him. He wasn't trying to figure Peter out. He was asking Peter for Peter's own benefit. He was giving Peter the opportunity to affirm three times what he had previously denied three times, and that was that he knows and loves Christ. And this is part of Jesus restoring their relationship and helping Peter move past the shame and guilt of having denied Jesus. Through Peter's moment of weakness, we get to witness an example of God's grace, mercy, and forgiveness. So why is this important to us here tonight? Well, I think some of us in this room need to be reminded that we don't need to be perfect for God to love us. Yes, Jesus restored you when you first decided to follow him, but he is still in the process of transforming you into his image. And we can fall into the trap of thinking that once we decide to follow Christ, we'll never struggle with sin again. But we all know from experience that that's not true. You will mess up sometimes. You will have your ups and downs in your walk with Christ. But God is a God of restoration. He wants to restore you to himself, for you to receive forgiveness and move forward, walking with him. You know, even after Peter's restoration, he still got it wrong from time to time. And as just one example, in Galatians 2, Paul confronts Peter in front of all the other Christians in Antioch for not eating with the Gentiles and separating himself from them because he was a Jew, because that was not in line with the truth of the gospel. But Peter also went on to do some pretty amazing things through God's strength. He preached at Pentecost in the temple and the Jewish high council. He performed miracles, raised the dead, healed the sick. He played a crucial role in introducing the gospel to the Gentiles and he became a pillar of the early church. God used Peter, broken, weak, foolish Peter, to spread the gospel and demonstrate his power. Which brings me to my final point, which is that God doesn't need perfection, but he wants our hearts. I think Peter's most redeemable quality is that he desired to be with Christ and to walk closely with him. His heart was for God. Yes, when Peter was called, he was a sinful, broken man. But when Jesus said, come, follow me, he left everything immediately 
and followed Jesus. How many of us would be willing to immediately drop everything we've ever known and ever loved to follow Christ if he asked us to? It was Peter who saw Jesus walking on the water and said, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he walked on water. Yes, he became frightened and he started sinking, but his desire was still to be with Christ. When Jesus asked the disciples who they say he is, it's Peter who declares, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And when many of Jesus' disciples start to desert him and turn away, Jesus asks the 12 if they also want to leave. And it's Peter who replies, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And even after Peter denies Christ, he literally throws himself in the water because he wants to be next to God and he wants to be next to Jesus. Peter wasn't perfect, but his desire was to follow Christ and his heart was for God. God wants our hearts. Earthly measures of success like power, wealth and knowledge are not what please him. Striving to be perfect in our own strength is not what pleases him. Completely surrendering our lives to him in all our brokenness is what pleases him. God wants us to ask him to be our strength when we are weak, to ask for his forgiveness and help as he heals our brokenness. In Psalm 51, verse 16 to 17, David writes, You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. You, God, will not despise. We were broken and weak, and God has restored us. We are broken and weak, and God is restoring us. God doesn't need us to be perfect. More than anything else, God wants our hearts and for our desire to be for him. Let's pray. Father God, thank you that we don't have to be perfect for you to love us. Lord, thank you that you sent your perfect son to die in our place and that now our sins are no longer counted against us and we can be called your children and we can call you our Abba Father. Lord, I just pray for anyone here tonight who um, is living under the bondage of feeling like they have to be perfect, of anyone here who is striving in their own strength to attain holiness and righteousness. And Lord, I just break whatever spirit or whatever bondage that is right now, Lord in your spirit, and I pray uh, for your healing. And Lord, I pray for a revelation for all of us of the depth of your love and your grace and your mercy. That Lord, we don't have to be perfect. That as we go through this process of sanctification, Lord, you continue to restore us and you continue to draw us close to you. And Lord, we pray as we go out this week that we would not fall victim to the enemy's accusations of not being good enough and of not being loved. And we just remember the truth that we are loved by you. And we pray that our desire would be for you more than anything else, Lord. We pray in your name. Amen.